Hi, everyone. Welcome to another episode of Open Mic. I am doing this one from Arizona, as you can see by the mountains behind me and the beautiful flowers. Today's a great episode with Chris Mama, who's the executive director of the North Carolina Center on Actual Innocence. For nearly two decades, Chris has served as the center's executive director. She's been instrumental in fighting for criminal justice reform. She has spearheaded legislation on eyewitness identification, the uh, recording of interrogations, preservation of biological evidence, and so much more. She's represented lots and lots of people, gotten them out of prison, uh, gotten wrongful convictions overturned. We talk about one Willie Grimes case that is just a heartbreaking case. Um, she's won a ton of awards, and uh, you're not going to want to miss this episode. I, I learned a ton, so stay tuned. You never know who you're going to see. Be one guy one-on-one my whole career. What you're going to hear. You got a lot of desperate people in the city. Or what they've got to say. When you can take people inside of a crime. That's what you're going to hear on my podcast, Open Mic. Find it where you find your podcasts. So, Chris, what I'd like you to tell our viewers is exactly how did you get started in the fight for justice for the wrongfully convicted? Well, it's kind of a long road. I was actually on a death penalty jury when I was uh, in finance. I worked in finance for nine years before going to law school. Uh, and that was kind of my eye-opening experience with the justice system. Then I, while I was working at Northern Telecom, I worked on contracts and uh, got interested in the corporate side of law. Went to law school thinking I would do corporate law. Uh, ended up clerking at the North Carolina Supreme Court. And as part of business, we're always looking at continuous improvement, process improvement, improvement to the bottom line, improvement to customer service, um, improvement to, to outcomes. And uh, I learned through my clerkship that that is not really what the priorities of the justice system are. Um, and so I became interested in, in process improvement in the justice system. And you've had quite the career. Um, you know, I've, I've, I've followed you. I've looked at your website. I, I, I you know, you, you talk a lot about several reoccurring problems um, that are consistent in the wrongful convictions. Um, the listeners and the watchers of Open Mic have, you know, we've interviewed six or seven different um, exonerees. We've talked about their wrongful convictions. So let's start with, uh, eyewitness identification. Um, and so why don't you just lay out the problem? And, you know, I've read that you, you've been able to create some um, new legislation in, in uh, uh, North Carolina that I'd love, I'd love to hear about. Sure. So eyewitness identification is always identified as the leading factor in wrongful convictions. But the fact is, it's, it's, a, it's usually the beginning factor. So you can have, if you have a misidentification, that leads you down the wrong path, and that can lead to a false confession, and that can lead to uh, forensic science, tunnel, and tunnel vision and investigations and analysis of forensic science. It can lead to a jailhouse informant. So oftentimes, uh, false identification branches out into other causation issues. So it's a key component of an investigation, and so it's critical that we do whatever we can to get it right in the beginning. We're not we're never going to have 100% reliability in IDs because our minds are not recorders and our minds, our memories are impacted by time and, and trauma and 
um, cross-race cross identification, whether it's white identifying black or black identifying white or black identifying Asian, we're, we're more comfortable identifying features of people who are similar to the people we spend our time with. Um, the, so in North Carolina, we were able, in 2008, we were one of the, I think we were actually were the first state in the country to have statutory change statewide for the way lineups need to be conducted to increase the reliability of the identification to the extent that we can. Doing things like presenting the identification in a sequential order versus simultaneous. So the, the viewers using um, absolute judgment rather than relative judgment when they're comparing those photographs to their memory. And hold, hold on, hold on, slow down for a second. I don't understand what that means. So okay. slow, slow down on how, um, you know, either lineups in person or it's a photograph photograph lineup. But but what do you mean by um, sequential um, versus the other way? So, you know, typically in a, in a law enforcement, you know, a, a TV show, you'll see someone look at a lineup where the photographs or the people are, are presented, lined up together, right? right. So they have, they're holding a number or it, so the, the, the witness or the victim is looking at all those people at the same time and they're saying, okay, which one is closest to my memory? Um, and so they're comparing the, each to each other to see which one is closest. Okay. And what we really want is the person to look at that individual in the photograph or live, and there's not many live lineups done these days, but com and compare that that image one at a time to their memory. Uh, okay, so, that makes sense. That makes a lot of sense. You know, it's interesting because a lot of the criminal justice reform makes comments. It is common. Right. Which is Imagine what that. <laughs> yeah, it's so, it's so frustrating about getting it passed because it makes complete sense. Um, the other part of, of identification that makes, makes complete sense is having somebody conduct the procedure who is not familiar with who the suspect is, right? So then they can't say, they can't hold this one up a little longer uh, or say something like, take your time on this one or anything, or, or even something unintentional like cough, which the witness or victim might take as a message when it's not meant to be a message. So what were you, so that is part of the law that you got changed in North Carolina. They now have, have to show the victim or the witness one photograph or one live person at a time versus five or six, like we see on TV. That's right. Interesting. And, and do you, how many states are, do you know how many states have adopted that? I mean, were you the first, did you say? We were the first to have statutory change. Uh, New Jersey, the attorney general took steps, but again, that those were recommended best practices. And North Carolina, we, we issued those as best practices, but then actually law enforcement came back to us and said, listen, we need some consistency across the state. So if somebody conducts a lineup for us in a county next door using a different procedure, we can use it in our court system. So law enforcement actually asked for it to be made into statutory law. So uh, the components are sequential, independent administration with standardized instructions for the witness and, and warnings like the investigation won't stop whether you make an identification or not. And that way the person is, doesn't feel this tremendous pressure that they're going to be the difference between the safe, the case being solved and not solved. 
the new legislation that you were talking about, the, the witness identification, was that the only component of witness identification that was fixed in the new legislation? No, it, you know, it includes many uh, components from, and it also addresses show-ups, which are inherently unreliable, as when uh, a crime is committed and in, in close in time and proximity, they take the witness or the victim to someone who is has a similar uh, appearance to what's been described as the perpetrator, and they show that one person to the victim or the witness, and that's inherently unreliable because the suggestibility of showing just one person uh, is problematic. But we've had we've had cases where that has happened. All the things you're talking about, um, it's just it's so interesting. Every time I do one of these, Chris, and I probably say this every time we do an episode, but. They are so similar. The yeah. wrongful convictions follow a playbook. And I like how you described earlier about how the wrongful identification kind of leads to the tunnel vision, which leads to all of the other bad things that happen. And if you, and if you fix the wrongful ID, then you know the jailhouse snitches and the other bad things are less likely to happen. And that just makes a ton of sense to me. Right. I think that's the case with eyewitness identification improvements, and I think that's the case with recording. Um, because particularly now, when everybody is so used to being recorded, right? I, we were recorded when we go to the grocery store, when we're at the ATM, when we're walking down the street. But yet, what happens in closed doors in a uh, law enforcement agency is, is not recorded? How can that be? Uh, that something that impacts somebody's life uh, is not recorded. So, so are, they rec are they recording lineups now? Well, the legislation for the lineups uh, re recommends the recording for the lineups. But again, that law was passed in 2008, and the ability to record was very different then. Now, um, and the ability to store, right? So there's there was these. Concerns. You always have the concern the sky is going to fall when you try and do criminal justice reform, and the sky has yet to fall. Uh, the floodgates don't open, and none of those things happen that people say are going to happen. But now you can record very easily. Um, they all have equipment in their departments, or they all have a cell phone in their pocket. Um, and the, you know now we have cloud storage, and they don't have to say they have need rooms to store all this stuff. Yeah, there's so, no excuses. There's no excuses. It's really not. We're, we're, every, all, the, all the complaints are being addressed, and they really don't have anything else to rely on. Um, so I think the recording of all, there's a lot of states that have passed recording of interrogations, um, but there's hours of things that happen before that interrogation, right? So before they're read their, their rights. So in my, my very strong opinion is that all interviews inside a detention, at a minimum, inside of a place of detention should be recorded from beginning to start, whether it's an interview or an interrogation. Um, I mean, we actually should be recording everything that happens on the street, but um, let's start at least if someone's brought into the police station so that we have those three hours before the interrogation in addition to the interrogation. That, that, again, makes a lot of sense. Tell, let's talk about uh, pres preservation of biological evidence. I know that you've uh, been instrumental in, in getting some laws passed in North Carolina. What was, what, what was the procedures that was happening and, and what were you able to change? So the preservation of biological evidence uh, passed in 2001 in North Carolina. And that was at a time when the federal 
uh, government under Janet Reno actually came out with um, uh, recommendations for preservation. And what I've been involved in is improving that, that legislation over the years. Um, it used to be that biological evidence meant blood or semen or sweat or spit. Um, now biological evidence includes fingerprints or a, something that somebody touched because the sensitivity of testing has increased so much that you can get DNA from one's very, very small samples and two uh, from skin cells. Um, so as the science develops, the ability to, to use that science to identify a perpetrator increases. So evidence that was collected 30 years ago, we may have not have had the science to test, but we ha have the science now. So it's important that, that it's important to keep it in custody or give notice of destruction. And that's the second part that people tend to skip over. It's not that we want law enforcement to keep everything. It's we want law enforcement to give the defendant notice that they're going to destroy. So the defendant can take action to either test or argue why it should be kept. Um, so that's the that's the part that that tends to get ignored as this evidence gets destroyed without notice to the defendant. And you know, I can't think of a better case. I know you've been involved in several um, exonerations, um, getting several people out of prison who were wrongfully convicted. And I've read about lots of your success, but you know, the one case uh, that almost has all of the elements that we're talking about is the Willie Grimes case. Yes. And I've, um, I've read interviews with him. I've read interviews with you. I've read a lot of the uh, articles that have been written. And as almost every single, you know, exoneration that I've read about, uh, they're heartbreaking, all of them, right? Yes. Um, this one, I can't say is more heartbreaking, but it is extremely hard to read about the mistreatment and the corruption and the fraud and the uh, what went on with his case um, and the fact that he was able to, you know, maintain his claims of innocence, which weren't claims, we were truthful claims of innocence, wouldn't take plea deals, um, wouldn't uh, agree to admit to anything, even though he probably could have gotten out sooner. So I was very moved by the story. You, so I'd love you to set it up for, for our audience. Um, and let's go through some of the, some of the BS that went on with this case and how you were able to finally get him out. That, that's a good way to describe it. Um, actually, there's a book called The Ghost of an Innocent Man that is about Willie's story. Uh, and I highly recommend that that okay. anybody who's interested in this topic. Um, but you, you talk about Willie holding on to you know, his innocence and not taking plea deals. But the other thing that Willie held on to that was always part of Willie was his grace. And um, when, when you meet Willie, you know right away that this is not a man who could have uh, committed this horrible crime. He is a, a gentle, gentle soul. And um, that is that is the, the really one of the heartbreaking components of it is um, how much time, 25 years of this man uh, life that was lost um, 
when he was the type of soul that he is. Um, I often challenge people to tell me something that is worse than being in prison for a crime you didn't commit. And, you know, I've been through situations with family cancer and deaths and things like that. I, I cannot come up with anything that's worse. Um, but in Willie's case, it, it does have the standard components of a cross-race identification, uh, elderly white woman um, raped by a black male. Uh, so you have cross-race identification issues. You have trauma with the rape. You have a weapon. So you have weapon focus. Uh, you have short interval between the time the man broke into the house and when the trauma begins. Uh, so she and she wore glasses and she was not wearing her glasses. Um, so you, and, and, and she couldn't, I mean, there's a, so much here and I don't mean to cut you off. I hate cutting people off, but I want to just break down. Let's talk about it. She could not identify him. And it, it turns out that the neighbor who, who, I mean, I want you to go into the details about this neighbor, the neighbor identified wrongfully Willie. That, well, she didn't identify him. She was a she was an informant for law enforcement. She knew all about uh, rewards. She had a personal vendetta against Willie because her sister was dating Willie, and Willie was actually providing for her sister and her sister's son in a way that made this informant jealous. Um, and Willie hung around um, the neighborhood, and so this. The, the neighbor went to the victim and said, hey, I think it might be this guy. What do you think about this guy? And, and it, that became the guy. Um, Did she so show him a picture of Willie? She, Willie had come to the, the house once to use the phone. And so she, she referred to him in that way. Um, but there were, there were definitely um, – things about Willie that would have made you remember, right? He had a, a, a large mole on his face that was, they called it like a grape vine or a hatch of grapes that the victim did not recall. Uh, the victim said that she broke her fingernails uh, scratching at the, the perpetrator and Willie did not have any scratches. Um, the uh, Willie has a scar on his chest. The perpetrator took off his shirt, and so there were a lot of a lot of indicators from the very beginning that she was not did not have an accurate description. And the the height and the weight and the that she first gave to the officer was changed once Willie became the suspect. Um, and then she was shown actually shown a picture of the lineup. Uh, on the stand, even though Willie was sitting there at the defense table and she actually made the statement that she couldn't tell the difference because they all look the same to her. <laughs> so, uh, you know, the racial but component is, is amazing. Is this, uh, is this the case where, didn't she identify like the defense attorney in this case? She said, when they said, can you identify him? She said, he's right there next to the, um, the man with the red shirt. And it was the defense attorney that, that she was pointing to. So, um, I, 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 so that is the one of the craziest facts, and, and, and the fact that he was convicted uh, based upon that. I mean, right there, if you don't have reasonable doubt, I don't. I don't. That is so infuriating. Did he tell me one thing that I didn't get a good sense of was the defense attorney. Usually, the defense attorneys are just the worst of the worst lawyers. 
um, they're usually disbarred not too long after these wrongful uh, convictions. But I, I, or should be. No, in most of the cases, and at least the ones I've, I've we've interviewed in Michigan, most of these lawyers are, uh, you know, they're either disciplined or disbarred, which is, I mean, of course, shocking to me, but, uh, or maybe it shouldn't be shocking because I've read these cross-examinations, which are two, three questions. But tell me about his defense attorney at trial. Was he was he court appointed? Was he retained? Was he good? Was he bad? I mean, what happened at trial? So, so let me say, so, and I will be the first to admit that ineffective assistance of counsel is one of the leading causation issues in these cases. But I'll, let me also point out that uh, appointed counsel are, are typically very underpaid and have very few resources. And so we have an overloaded, uh, underfunded justice system that where the people who need the representation the most are getting the least qualified people because we, we're not paying people correctly. Um, but the, the really amazing thing about the attorney in this case was, um, I mean, you do read this, this transcript and you say, how did this happen? Um, he was, he was actually pretty good. And he actually, at the close of the case, he, he made a motion for DNA testing and that was very early, early on in DNA. So it was kind of very forward thinking of him and, and, and a great move. And then it ends, right? There's no follow-up on the judge. The judge says he'll take it under advisement and the defense attorney doesn't follow up and the judge doesn't follow up. And then the evidence is destroyed. Um, so it's, it's really, you know, you had that moment to, to get to the truth and it was lost. Jeez, that that's heartbreaking. So so first we have uh, a neighbor who's paid to to give a uh, the, you know give up somebody she's jealous of. Uh, clearly the wrong man. He had eight alibi witnesses who test did did they all testify that he yes, there's no did. way he could have there's no way he could have been at the crime scene. Yes, they did. They did. Yes, rely- they did. Did that come read come across as reliable? Uh, well, you know, unfortunately, you spend most of your time with friends and family, and so those are the people who are going to testify as your alibi witnesses, and those are the people where the jury's going to say, well, those are friends and family, so who can believe them? It's like they want you to have an alibi by a complete stranger. Um, and, and I think race played into it, right? These, are, these were all black individuals who were defending the black man against the rape of a white woman. Uh, so I think all of that came into play. Um, I, you know, one of the most disturbing parts about this case, though, is that and it is similar to other cases where the true perpetrator was basically under the nose of the investigators. And because of the tunnel vision, uh, they well, let's say because of the tunnel vision and because of the, of the relationship with the lead investigator, um, the lead investigator, uh, the, the perpetrator's brother was on the police force and the lead investigator was best friends with the perpetrator's brother. Um, and wow. so when they showed a lineup to the victim with this, the true perpetrator in it, she did not identify him. All the other evidence that basically pointed to him was put into a file and kept out of the main file. Um, so it's a, uh, it's another one of those cases where the, t- the tunnel vision was incredible and, and yep. the inept investigation. That, that is completely nuts. Um, 
let's talk about, I mean, you know, in a rape, there are lots of, you know, there's lots of biological evidence. Um, and so the, the rape kit, was it ever, um, there was no testing on it or there wasn't, this is in the eighties. So there wasn't a lot of DNA testing, but did no. they ever? No, there, there was this motion for DNA testing, which uh, there was biological evidence that there, there was semen and sperm. But so if they had done DNA testing, uh, even that early with DNA testing, it probably would have been one of the first DNA exoneration cases. Um, but event, within two years, the rape kit, the sheets, all the evidence was destroyed. Um, which was pretty standard practice. Once the appeal is final, then we must have gotten it right and all the challenges are over, so let's destroy everything and move on. Um, so this case was, was uh, fascinating because it was solved with the, with the fingerprints when the rapist, after the rapist raped this woman, he had the absolute gall to ask her to make him something to eat. Um, and um, she was praying and, and crying and very traumatized. And he said, never mind. I'll he went to the kitchen and went through her fruit bowl of bananas and apples and again had the gall to pick out the ones that weren't pleasing to him and put them on the side of the table and took some bananas and an apple. Uh, the banana peels were found on the sidewalk as he walked out of the house, the apple core uh, was found in the street, was actually collected by the lead investigator, uh, would have been a great source of saliva, and he took it back to the, the agency and threw it in the trash can for uh, unknown reason. Um, but when he touched those bananas and put them aside, they collected fingerprints, and the oil from the banana actually was a, a very good conduit for the prints. And those prints, although we were told for over years and years that all the evidence is destroyed and the fingerprints were not available, and, uh, it took the Innocence Inquiry Commission, which is a state agency here, it took their ability to go in and actually do a search. Um, a lot of times we ask for evidence in cases and we get the reply, there's nothing left when, when nobody even got up out of their chair to check. Um, and the fingerprints were, were found in the investigative file and they were run through APIS, which is the automated fingerprint indexing system and hit on Albert Turner, who was, uh, lived in the neighborhood, was known for these, uh, for assaults, uh, had a violent history, raped other people, other women. Um, so serendipity <laughs> came into play. Uh, you know, a lot of a lot of times you see in these cases some type of divine intervention, serendipity, whatever you want to call it, uh, that finally leads to justice. Did did he get convicted and charged with that crime? Uh, he died. He um, was being he was being looked at. He was uh, he was charged, but he died before going forward to uh, trial or anything. But the, but it was a clear it was a clear match. I mean, it was it was him. Yes, it was a clear match, and he eventually came up with the story that he had gone grocery shopping for her or something and had bought fruit the week before. And, uh, you know, it was, that was clearly a lie. This woman, her husband had died a year before. She did not allow anybody into the house. She had very few people that she trusted to come into the house. 
and and you know we had to use evidence like you know the bananas were green so they definitely weren't a week old and things what, like that what, what was the fingerprints uh evidence used at trial at the original trial uh the fingerprints were used at the original trial it was determined they did not match willie but they assumed they came from somebody in the grocery store they actually never even compared them to the victim um so they knew willie was excluded uh, but you know you can write that off as well you know the cashier might have touched them or somebody put their fruit out might have touched them so apis that's why these these databases are so important because they can lead to a match to someone who has this criminal history that is so it was argued to the jury that it didn't match but they didn't have a system so they didn't they weren't able to find this turner piece of garbage uh um to to show the jury that it was somebody else or the police probably couldn't i mean they didn't it, well, it was they just did. that the fingerprints were irrelevant so they, they just didn't they had no relevance to the case her, her identification and the the informant's information was was more valuable even so, though incredibly weak. Right. So, so this innocence inquiry commission, I mean, that was pretty darn, um, I don't know if, I don't know what the right word is forward thinking or um, <laughs> innovative. Yeah. I mean, to say, we're going to go in there and we're going to search your files. And, uh, so how did that come about? How did they get involved, um, to do this? Well, let me give a little, if you don't mind me giving a little background on the innocence Please. inquiry because again it's one of those things that um, happened uh, and, and it's interesting the history of it when I clerked I, I clerked for I Beverly Lake who was the Chief Justice of the North Carolina Supreme Court and because of my corporate background and my finance background and his responsibility for the finances of the, the court system throughout the state our, we've developed a very close relationship I, my role kind of went beyond the normal boundaries of a clerkship um, and when I left, while I was working, clerking for him, I, I had two cases in particular where I felt like the jury definitely got it wrong. I felt like there was evidence of innocence that was not presented, fairly presented. And I kind of took those cases in my mind with me and I had accepted um, jobs in, in law firms and talked to my criminal law professor about these cases and said, you know, they're really eating at me. And that's when I, he suggested I start, uh, I come work with him on innocence cases and for free, and somehow that was a good idea. But what came out of that was my relationship with Justice Lake. And as Chief Justice, his, his primary focus was public confidence in the courts. And there's nothing that, that impacts public confidence more, weakens it, than a wrongful conviction. So uh, our work was still tied together very closely. And... We talked about these cases in the process quite a bit. And in 2002, he worked with me to establish a study commission, which is how we ended up in North Carolina with ID reform, improved preservation of biological evidence law, recording of interrogations, and then the Innocence Inquiry Commission, um, which was designed to address two primary issues. One was procedural bar. Uh, once you go forward with a case post-conviction that you basically get one bite at the apple. And if you don't take the biggest bite and, and present as much evidence as you possibly can, 
then you are procedurally barred from coming back again for another bite at the apple. Um, the other is um, was the evidence issue where of the 22 cases at one point that there had been searches in 22 cases by the Innocence Commission and they had found evidence that was reported as being destroyed or lost in, in 11 cases. So wow. that it, is unbelievable. It is. It's a horrible statistic and uh, horrible. 50 percent. That so we have since ch uh, upgraded, changed the law, improved the law, uh, where if a um, custodian of evidence is is requested, an inventory is requested by the defendant or the attorney for the defendant, that custodian has to provide a written statement that they did a search and there's nothing there. And when you have to sign your name to something where you know there could be a felony charge that follows it, if you didn't do a proper search it increases um, the reliability a little bit. Uh, but sure. that's, that's one of the major advantages to the Innocence Inquiry Commission is their ability to, to look for files and to look for evidence that defense attorneys are not able to do. Uh, they've proven very successful at that, but the question remains, why is that not part of our normal justice system? For sure. I mean... It's I, I, my, I mean, it's just mind blowing, right? It's just the, the fact that they had to go in and search some somebody else's evidence room uh, is just it's just remarkable. Yes, um, well, there's, uh, there's so many there's so many examples of it. Is it's it's uh, not it's not remarkable anymore. It's just sad. It is so. So the Innocence Inquiry Commission is this run by the state currently? I mean, this is a state run organization. Is this? Um, it's an independent, um, it basically takes the justice, the case out of the adversarial system and puts it into an inquisitorial process, which is similar to what the UK has. So um, it temporarily removes the case for independent investigation. And then the case comes back. If there's some evidence, then the case comes back into the adversarial system. Uh, the legislation was written in 2005. It was very forward thinking. Uh, mm -hmm. Justice Lake was uh, an incredible leader in getting the legislation passed, had a lot of his very, very close friends who criticized him and said, what is what has gotten into your head? Um, but um, it, the, the, I, lo I love the idea, just like anything else, when you get humans involved, uh, a good idea can can have problems. Um, it needs some improvement. It needs some changes. Uh, has not kept up with the changes in laws that we've had the last 15 years. Uh, so at this point, if somebody goes through the commission, they actually have less access to their files uh, than someone who who doesn't go through the commission process. Willie Grimes, Grimes is a great example to, um, Willie was in for 25 years, he was proven innocent, and uh, the commission would not let him act, have access to his files. So again, defies common sense. It, yeah, I, you know, I've never heard of this. This is news to me. We don't have this in Michigan, um, in some of the other states that I've interviewed people. I, I've not heard of this. The what's what's in vogue is the conviction integrity units inside the prosecutor offices, which I thought was forward thinking. Just like we, we've used that word a few times today, um, and that's not an independent agency i mean that's 
having, you know, that's, that's having the Fox in the hen house for lack of a better term, but there's some really wonderful things, especially in Detroit that are happening. I mean, they're doing such a wonderful job uh, of going through these old files and, and writing wrongs. Do you have that? Do you have that in your jurisdiction? That so it is that was basically the concept we came up with right before the conviction integrity units were established. That was this, that was basically what we were trying to do, and it is the fox in the hen house if there's not cooperative effort, right? There's never going to be confidence in a review of a case if the prosecutor is and law enforcement are looking at it behind closed doors and they say, "Hey, everything's okay here, no reason to be concerned." But if you're working cooperatively with defense attorneys who have a different perspective and a, and a different way of looking at evidence, then you can have more confidence in the joint determination uh, that a case is, is okay, that justice was served. Um, so that's part of the element that is missing with the Innocence Inquiry Commission is that cooperative nature, uh, the transparency. Um, I think if we could make those changes to the Innocence Inquiry Commission so that it was more of a statewide conviction integrity unit, which was our initial vision, uh, then it would be it would be a very good model. So you know you 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 run the the North Carolina Center on Actual Innocence. You said before we got on the podcast podcast how busy you are. How many cases are you actually working on? And and I'm curious what your impression is. Like how how many people are sitting in prison, I guess, just in North Carolina that uh, you think are actually innocent? Well, I, you know, people ask for estimates and I say, I always say, you know, it's, it's, it's more than a couple for sure. Uh, and if there's one, uh, I mean, again, I can't think of anything worse. So it, they, it is a matter of finding the needles in the haystack, but uh, they're very, very important needles. Um, we have currently have 130 active cases, 134 active cases. Uh, right now, our advanced caseload, which is cases where we would really stand behind the innocence of somebody, is much higher than it's ever been. Um, it's it's close to 20 cases. Um, wow. So their their battles, these these cases are um, in North Carolina. It's not a cooperative effort. And, um, you know, I always say I, I have brick marks on my forehead from beating my head against the wall. Um, so they are, I've been doing this over 20 years and it, it is, it is draining. It is frustrating. It is draining. Um, and it's, it's life consuming. Chris, do you, do you think it's getting better? So the reason I ask that is a lot of the people I've interviewed, a lot of the files I've gone through are older, okay, 20, 30 years ago. Um, are you, do you think that with the changes that you've helped make in North Carolina, and I'm, I guess I'm talking across the country too, but do you think it's getting better and it's getting harder to convict innocent people? Um, I definitely think it's getting better. I think in North Carolina, we established, established the Indigent Defense uh, Services Commission in 2000, which uh, increased education and standards for appointed counsel. So I think our defense bar is much stronger than it used to be. Um, I think the science is helping. You know, our state lab, the statistic is about 25% of suspects are eliminated uh, before through DNA testing before 
during the investigation. So without DNA testing, those people likely would have gone forward as suspects. Um, so I think there's a lot of indications that the system, the investigation process is getting better. I think that we have still have a lot of work to do on the prosecution side of the process where we are overcharging and you know, 95% of cases are pled out because people are threatened or they need to get back to work or they need to get back home. I mean, most of our work focuses on felonies. Misdemeanor rates of wrongful conviction are much, much higher than felonies. Um, so I think the prosecution side needs to be changed, needs a lot of work. I, I don't think the culture has changed as much as it needs to. We are working on process. But the culture is what needs to be addressed, and that starts from the top. Uh, and I think more attention needs to be put on that, where we are, where there's there. It's okay for a law enforcement officer to stand up and say, "Hey, I worked on this case five years ago. I think there might be a problem here." Um, it serves the victim. Uh, to do that, it serves the wrongfully convicted. It serves the community with the perpetrator. So uh, until we have a change in culture at the top of law enforcement and at the top of prosecution, I don't think the progress is going to be what we need it to be. Well, God bless you and all the hard work and all the great work you're doing. Um, keep up the good work. Keep up the great work. Christine, Mama, thank you for being on the show and, and giving us uh, our viewers and listeners, an idea of what's going on. You know, we love to promote these things and, and, and let people know that if you're a witness, if you're on the jury, if you see something, you know, that these things are out there. And I think, I think we're, I think public is being, a, uh, is more aware now that, that this is happening, that this has happened in the past, that wrongful convictions are real. There's a story that comes out almost every week, if right. not every day of the Willie Grimes of the world. Um, and I just think it's important to get the word out there. So thank you for being on the show. I think one more word that needs to get out there, Mike, is that people are out there who know of wrongful convictions, right? They have information about cases and they, they need to not be afraid to come forward. There's people that can help. There's people that can protect them. Uh, so people need to come forward with information they have about mistakes that have been made. That's a great, great point. Um, that that happens once in a while and it happens to happen more because you're right that these these shifty jailhouse informants and people iding wrong people and people can't id bad the wrong person if they don't know they have to say they don't know and right. on and on and on there's so many things that need to be fixed right um and hopefully it will soon with people like you at the helm of it all so anyway Thanks thank you to the forefront my pleasure thank you again all right, bye -bye. take care. Bye-bye. What an interesting episode with Chris Mama. I learned a lot. I, you know, just going down this path of wrongful convictions, I can't believe it's still happening. The fact that she has over 130 cases, it's, and how many more people are sitting in prison. Um, I think she gave a great tip that if you are out there listening and you know that somebody's sitting in prison for something they didn't do, step up, find the courage, find someone that you can tell in law enforcement or the prosecutor's office and, and get it done. These people, what is worse than sitting in prison for something that you did not commit? 
Thank you for watching. Thank you for listening. Share this episode, like this episode, comment, email me on something else you want to hear about. And we have our hundredth episode that you're also not going to want to miss coming up very soon. So thank you and take care.